Hey everyone, just a reminder, this is the last episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast of 2020. We've got some episodes coming up in the coming weeks. If you don't want to miss any of them, please push subscribe and they'll be sent directly to your listening device. All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is it for 2020. It's been a great year. Chris and I will uh, look back a little bit at the end of this episode, but I want to let you know we are delivering a jam-packed episode today. We're going to speak with folks who are bringing you the vaccine. That's right. Happy Vaccine Week. We open up with Chris's interview with Elizabeth Woody. She's the Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at BD. BD, of course, has a leading role in creating syringes. Next up, I'll speak with Claudia Roa. She is the Vice President of Life Sciences and Healthcare at DHL. She'll talk about how DHL is shipping the vaccine across the world. And finally, I had the chance to speak with Eric Eskiaglu. Eric Eskiaglu is the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Novant Health. Dr. Eskiaglu talked to us about the vaccinations they started just yesterday on Thursday of their doctors and nurses. It was a very emotional day. And now we're joined by my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Science at Mass Device, and for the first time, Brian Bunce, pharma editor. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me on. So, Brian, you joined us uh, just a few months ago. Tell us, uh, tell our folks a little bit about you. I know you're uh, a med tech person. I think, uh, by and large, you've been covering med tech for a while. Now you're doing our, our pharma sites. Uh, where do you, where did you come to us from? Well, I started out in 2005 writing about the European medical device industry for a company called Canon Communications. Covered a, a range of different topics there from biomaterials to drug delivery to venture capital funding, cybersecurity, and then um, moved through the ranks at Canon Communications sorry, and eventually became part of UBM, worked with Chris for mm-hmm. a couple of years. And then after yeah. that, I worked for a company called Penton, which got acquired by Informa. Covered IoT in that kind of space for a little bit, and then in October I joined to cover pharma. So it's somewhat of a new beat, but I've covered some aspects of it before. So looking to um, dig in my heels and, and learn more. That's the it's the amazing thing about the, the the content business. You can have the same job and work for four or five different companies after you've been bought and sold so many times. I know that that's <laughs> that's happened to me. My LinkedIn page is largely. <laughs> Reflecting the number of times I've been bought, not the number of jobs I've switched. Yeah, the crazy M&A world of uh, trade media is crazy. <laughs> anyway, we, we as I said up top, we have a full day today, a full package of podcast offerings for our listeners. So Chris Newmarker, how do we want to start? Do we want to start with uh, with a top 10? We're going to change up the... The new markers, newsmakers. That's right. We're going to change it up. We're going to uh, give you the top 10 list of, uh, of news items in 2020. I guess it's the news markers, newsmakers, top 10. Dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. All right. We'll just, we'll just uh, start and get into number 10. All right. Well, let's start at number 10. I mean, you know, uh, we had, uh, you know, Boston Sci this year. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they said that they were, uh, you know, discontinuing their uh, Lotus Tavern device, pro, you know, program. And they're going to be uh, instead, uh, you know, focusing on, um, you know, a new Tavern product for the future. So, I mean, this was big news in the Tavern space. Um, Boston Sci really uh, kind of like seeding ground, you know, for now to, uh, you know, Edwards and Medtronic, which have, you know, really, um, you know, dominated the space in the U.S. So that's number 10. That was, that was certainly big news for sure. What do we have at number nine, Chris? Well, number nine, I mean, one of the things that we saw as the COVID-19 pandemic ramped up was that FDA uh, issued temporary guidance saying, you know, you can remotely monitor hospital patients, uh, you know, in order to limit, you know, contact with hospital staff. And one of the things that that allowed was, you know, the use of uh, continuous glucose monitors uh, in hospitals. You know, these are devices made by companies such as Dexcom and uh, Abbott. And, you know, this move, you know, it appears to have opened up an entirely new market for uh, CGMs. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense if you're in the hospital and you have diabetes in the past, you've, you know, constantly had nurses coming in to check your, uh, or other staff coming in to check your, uh, your blood sugar and uh, just having a, a CGM on and being able to, you know, broadcast that data seems to make a lot of sense. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see if this, uh, you know, sticks uh, after the pandemic, uh, you know, lifts. 
So number eight on the list is uh, has been like the need for uh, you know medtech sales reps to go remote during the the pandemic. And Tom, you've written a lot about this. I mean, tell us some more about what's going on with that. Yeah, this is a really interesting development. I mean, you have a lot of the the big startup companies like Explorer and Avail and a lot of the larger medtech companies that are saying they need to have these remote connections in the OR because they can't get sales reps in there either because of the fear of infection or because there's just uh, with all the ambulatory surgery surgery centers, there's just a lot of territory to cover. So there certainly is a great opportunity for these these companies to connect surgeons with uh, medical sales reps. But we're also seeing a lot of pushback from sales reps especially in orthopedics saying, no, 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 they're still essential. And we had Spencer Stiles on from Stryker a couple of weeks ago saying that they tried the remote thing and it didn't work and they need to have their sales reps in the OR. So it's going to be interesting to see whether this becomes one of those uh, post-COVID things that sticks or something we look back at and say, oh, yeah, I remember when we thought that would be the future of, uh, of MedTech. So certainly bears watching. I was going to say on the manufacturing side, I've heard of some companies that are trying to get around that same hurdle by using augmented reality. So you have like a component that breaks or what have you, and then you have somebody puts on the AR headset, and they're able to communicate with a colleague or with an expert. And it's different than the OR example, but it's that same basic hurdle of you can't get people who are qualified into facility. Yeah. I wonder if, if that will be a trend that we'll see more of. I know AR is kind of like a new technology, but it seems like it's a good kind of case for it that if you can't get workers in, you could use that to, to give kind of superpowers to the ones you can get in. Yeah, they're like Bob and Martha isn't around the plant today. So like, let's get them on a AR headset, you know, help, have them help us out like or whatever. Pretty cool, you know. So number seven on the list was uh, we had uh, you know Bayer uh, in uh, in August announcing that it was uh, settling ninety percent of uh, Easter claims for one point six billion dollars, and uh, you know the the um, you know the Easter birth control device. I mean, that's arguably been one of uh, you know MedTech's uh, greatest failures over the past decade or so. You know, with um, countless uh, you know women you know saying that they've experienced adverse health conditions. From uh, from the device, uh, so you know. Hopefully, this is the um, you know the beginning of the end with um, you know this uh, with, with this story. But um, but uh, definitely um, you know big big news uh, when it comes to to Bayer and Esher this year. Yeah, it'll be great to sort of close the chapter on those. Uh those tragedies that really rolled out in, the, in that Netflix film, The Bleeding Edge. I know that uh, knocked a, knocked a lot of people over yeah. and, and upset a lot of folks. And there's a lot of things that uh, hopefully will be we'll be able to move on from. But uh, now let's uh, let's get into our first conversation. Chris, you actually led uh, led this conversation up. Tell us who you talked to. Yeah, you know, I talked to uh, Elizabeth Woody, who's uh, a, 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 a you know, head of public affairs at, uh, at BD. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was interesting because okay we were you know everybody's excited about the vaccines right now um, there's a lot of hopes around it but I mean if if you're gonna like deliver vaccines to people you need syringes and needles and one of the you know companies really in the in the middle of that is uh, is BD so uh, you know I uh, you know I had a, a good conversation with Elizabeth about uh, you know what the company's been been having to do in order to uh, you know get. Get, get syringes where they need to go uh, in, in order to help with the pandemic. And actually, since I spoke with her, uh, BD says their orders with uh, governments around the world have surpassed one billion. So, I mean, it's uh, it's just a it's just a huge task that they're uh, facing right now. Brian, you're editing our uh, our pharma sites. Uh, you've been following the the vaccine rollout story closely. You sat through the FDA meeting last week. What uh, what are some takeaways? What are some things that you've noticed, and maybe some things that we're not talking about that we should be. I think one of the most interesting things from the meeting with Pfizer and BioNTech last week with the FDA advisory panel was you had a series of patient advocates that went on kind of like early in the day. And I think some of them voiced like the um, the kind of grounded concerns you have where you have like a new vaccine that's being developed in rapid timeframes. But you also had like some people that were I don't know, kind of almost like scaremongering saying things that were not totally factually accurate. There was a, somebody who spoke about saying that the 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 Pfizer vaccine used fetal stem cells, which is not true and the development of it. And I think that's been debunked, but you had some kind of like scaremongering type information mixed in with everything else. And I think when you look at what experts expect in terms of getting, um, stopping the pandemic, you have to have 58 to 94% of the population vaccinated according to an estimate as well from McKinsey. I think if you have people that are kind of scaremongering is gonna be 
a challenge to even get to that kind of like the lower end of that scale. It's a topic to watch, I guess, as we move into the, the new year. But um, I mean, right now there are people drinking beers and bars in Minnesota without masks, like defying the governor's order. So, I mean, yeah, are, are they going to take a vaccine? I mean, it's, um, man, it's, it's definitely, it seems like a challenge. Good thoughts all around, or at least important ones. I don't know if they're good or the kinds that make you feel comfortable. But uh, let's now get into the conversation, Chris, that you had with Elizabeth Woody. She's the Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at BD. Well, I'm joined here today by Elizabeth uh, Woody, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at uh, BD. Elizabeth, welcome to Device Talks Weekly. Thanks, Chris. Glad to join you. Oh, you know, we're talking today on on uh, Monday this week, uh, and just just on late on Friday, we had the you know the FDA gave authorization to you know Pfizer's uh, COVID vaccine, so we've got our you know first uh, first COVID vaccine authorized in the U.S. I know the reports I've been reading is that it's uh, you know shipping out as as we speak. But I mean, tell me, I mean, what what role is BD playing in this? Yeah, so, you know, one of the critical elements to delivering a vaccine, of course, are the injection devices that are required to actually get the vaccine into someone's body. And, that would help, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't drink it, drink it or rub it on. Yeah. So uh, we do need needles and syringes to administer the vaccine. Um, and fortunately, this is a space that, that BD knows well. Uh, drug delivery devices are really you know, the foundation of our company. And uh, we have a long history in supporting global immunization campaigns. And quite frankly, Chris, we've been planning um, for this kind of event for the last 10 years, ever since uh, the H1N1 pandemic gave us a little bit of a a dry run. Um, We learned a lot of lessons from that experience that, that we're definitely applying now. Uh, We didn't know then that we were preparing for coronavirus, but we did know that we needed to uh, take some more steps to be prepared for a, for a full-fledged pandemic like the one we find ourselves in now. Right. I mean, we've, we've had huge pandemics in the past, so it would, it would make you know, sense to... You know, what, what kind of lessons did you learn from you know, H1N1 um, that, that are helping you out now? Sure. So I, I would start by saying that early planning and preparation are, are just critical, right? And uh, we've been working with governments across the globe uh, to pre-position needles and syringes uh, so that when a vaccine or vaccines become available, uh, we had the drug delivery devices in place in order to ensure that the vaccine could be administered. So as I said, been working with governments on that planning process, and we've also been uh, ramping up our manufacturing capacity uh, to to keep up with not only the, the demand for injection devices for coronavirus, but also to continue to support uh, flu immunization as well as annual childhood immunizations. Uh, so we have to make sure we're keeping that, that balance in mind. Totally. I mean, I, I, I know in uh, BD's recent earnings call, I, it, like just some numbers that really stuck out to me was, you know, that, uh, you know, your, uh, your top executives were saying that you've got production orders for over 800 million needles and syringes to deliver COVID vaccines. And, you know, at the same time, you know, BD recently, you know, announced that you're putting $1.2 billion into drug delivery uh, plant expansion. So, I mean, I mean, those kinds of figures just Tell me, this is uh, you know, this this isn't a small little effort going on here. No, no, and you know, maybe just to put a fine point on that, we uh, manufacture both you know standard needle and syringe, which is used to draw up the vaccine from a vial, um, as well as uh, pre-filled needles and syringes, which we provide to pharma companies, and they fill those glass syringes with the vaccine so that it's ready to administer. So that uh, recent investment of $1.2 billion that you referenced, that was around manufacturing capacity for those pre-filled syringes. Wow. Uh, but we really see, you know, the need for kind of this whole continuum of injection devices. You know, at first, what we understand from our, our pharma partners is that they're going to put the vaccine in, in multi-dose vials, right? So you'll need those uh, needles and syringes to draw the vaccine up from the vial, but as more is known about the properties of the vaccine, you know, I think we'll see a movement to put them in pre-filled uh, syringes, which 
help to expedite, you know, the administration process, right? That's kind of longer term, right? As we look beyond the initial doses of the vaccine to, you know, into next year and beyond uh, where we might have more of a, a regular immunization effort like we do with flu. You know, the Pfizer, what we got right now is the Pfizer vaccine. It needs to be kept uh, super cold. Is there any technological challenges you've had to think of with, uh, you know, with the syringes when you're, you know, drawing out something that had to be kept on dry, dry ice, basically, like an Antarctic temperatures? (laughs) (laughs) Not, not, not from a a needle and syringe perspective, but I do know that uh, the pharma companies and our distribution partners that are, are moving the product across the country have been taking all of those necessary steps to, to make sure that the temperature control is, is sufficient so that when, you know, it does come time for administration, there, there are no issues with that. I mean, syringe technology, it's been around since, you know, the, you know, the early 1800s. Is it, is it easy to ramp up production? Is it easy to get new lines going? I mean, but, I mean what, what has to go into, you know, making sure that, you know, these are, you know, safe, reliable you know, syringes for delivering vaccines. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I'll point to here is that uh, we actually are partnering with the U.S. government to bring on um, some additional manufacturing lines at our facility in Nebraska. That is something we announced a few months ago, and it does take quite a bit of time to set those lines up and, and get them running, right? You need the equipment to establish the lines. Fortunately, we have the space in Nebraska. We're not uh, needing to, to build a new facility. But just, you know, there is a lot of engineering behind a, a plastic molded syringe and the, the needle on the end. That may not seem obvious, uh, but, but it is pretty intense engineering feat to, to deliver those products, particularly at the scale that that we do. So again, back to the investment in Nebraska, you know, as I said, we announced that a couple months ago, and we expect those additional three lines to be up and running this summer. Um, So it does take, you know, nine to 12 months to really establish a new line. So in order to meet the, the current demand that we're seeing, we're really leveraging our global manufacturing um, infrastructure that we currently have as we think about, you know, the additional capacity coming online this summer. And then again, obviously, we talked about our investment on the pre-filled side, you know, really making sure that we're leveraging all those capabilities to support delivering as many doses um, as possible. Tell me a little bit more about those, you know, engineering, you know, challenges, because, you know, many of our listeners are engineers, uh, but, you know, what what would be something that, I don't know, might not be intuitive that, uh, you know, that, you know, goes into, like, you know, making sure these, you know, syringes are effective? You know, first you have to have the raw materials, right, to, to mold the plastic into a syringe. I think, you know, one of the things that your listeners might find interesting is, in the state of Nebraska, where we manufacture a number of these products, we're actually one of the largest consumers of energy uh, because the process of actually molding the, the syringe is so energy intensive, right? And, and then, you know, as I said, you need um, cannula. So you need the steel to form the cannula that is the, the needle on the end of the syringe. Um, so it's a bit of a two-step process there. And then, you know, you have to have the product go through a quality control process to ensure that, you know, nothing, there were no hiccups along the the manufacturing process. But I think, you know, you pointed out that that these technologies have been around for a while. And that's really where I think BD's expertise, um, you know, really stands out because we do have a reliability. uh, I think that's second to none in our supply chain. Uh, we, know, we know how to manufacture needles and syringes. We've been doing it for, for a long time and, and we've really per- perfected the process. Um, so, you know, we're confident in the volumes uh, that we've committed to based on that long track record. Wow. How do you make sure that, you know, there's enough syringes wherever, you know, the, the vaccine is going? Yeah, so that's really where the partnership with governments has has been critical, right? So, you know, in the U.S., for example, we've been speaking with the team at HHS and BARDA for for a number of months to understand how they were thinking about the vaccine, right? And so, you know, their plan 
from a federal government perspective was to secure enough doses of the vaccine to, to vaccinate the entire population, planning on an initial injection and then a booster shot. So um, if you think of, you know, a population of roughly, you know, 330 to 350 million people times two, you know, you're in the ballpark of, of 700 million needles and syringes. And we've seen that same kind of uh, scenario play out with other governments, you know, the UK, for example, yeah. uh, planning to vaccinate its entire population. So obviously that dialogue with governments is, is just been critical to informing, you know, the volumes that, that we are planning for to support this effort. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was uh, interesting over the weekend. I heard on NPR there was a UPS official like saying that they, you know, they they could like track real time where the you know Pfizer coolers were going around, you know, the United States. But so I, mean, I, I guess like kind of the partnerships with the government are are kind of saying, hey, we're going to be shipping you know a million to this state. You know, make sure that you know your supplies are basically backing that up. Am I am I kind of hearing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a huge logistical effort behind yeah. all this, right? And, um, you know, the, the Operation Warp Speed team has been working, obviously, with vaccine manufacturers, ourselves, distributors, to make sure that, you know, the, the necessary plans are in place. You've probably seen that the federal government has, has partnered with um, McKesson to help distribute a lot of the uh, supplies that will be needed yeah. to administer the vaccine. And um, our needles and syringes are in that mix. So uh, for it. us, the way it's working is that we're, you know, shipping the, the volume of products that the government has, has purchased from us um, to that central McKesson site, and they're preparing the kits that they're then sending out, either in parallel with the vaccine or in the case of the, the Pfizer vaccine, the kits are going uh, separate from the vaccine, given the uh, cold chain storage issues that we touched on earlier. I, we've talked a lot about syringes, you know, uh, but I know, you know, BD is, you know, a, a huge corporation doing like many things. I mean, uh, anything else, you know, that would be good to, to mention about, you know, BD's, you know, efforts that BD is making to help, you know, manage this deadly virus. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I, I would start with our work uh, in the diagnostic space and, and really that, you know, begins with, tools to enable sample collection and transport. So swabs and transport media really are the tip of the spear. You've got to make sure you can actually collect the specimen in order to do the test. Um, so, so in the early days, uh, back at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we did a lot to ramp up the capacity and production of, of those tools. I remember and that, yeah. So that, that was sort of, like I said, the tip of the spear for us. And then uh, shortly after that, in early August, or excuse me, in early April, we uh, got an emergency use authorization, actually two emergency use authorizations for tests on our, our PCR platform, our, our BD Max instrument. Um, so, you know, continuing uh, to, to distribute uh, thousands of tests to support diagnosis on that platform. And then in July, we got an emergency use authorization for our rapid antigen a test on our, our BD Veritor point of care platform, which has been ramping up significantly. And, and your, you and your listeners yeah. have probably seen that uh, we've been partnering with the federal government uh, to make sure those technologies are, are in the hands of those who are caring for the most vulnerable. And uh, we have a significant partnership with nursing homes across the country um, because that test can provide a result in, in 15 minutes. So really enabling uh, decision making right at at the patient's uh, bedside. So, um, you know that that diagnostic space is one um, that's a tremendous focus for us. In addition to all the work on, on yeah. vaccine delivery, how much has the historical nature of this you know, sunk sunk in? That you know, just mm. just the efforts and the roles that you and your colleagues at your company are, are, are doing? I mean, what, I mean, how, how, how does that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, so I've been with BD for um, almost 12 years now. And one of the reasons that I joined the company was because our technologies were so fundamental to the, the, to the delivery of healthcare that there's hardly 
a public health issue out there that we don't care about or can't help address. And, you know, that's more true today than it was 12 years ago. And, you know, I think I speak on behalf of my colleagues and, um, you know, the entire team at BD that, you know, this is exactly where we want to be. We want to be part of, of helping to solve this challenge. And, and so I think, you know, you've seen our teams around the world just doing incredible things, right? Developing technologies in record time, uh, ramping up production, you know, distributing products in, in ways that we never thought we would need to uh, really to, to, you know, meet this public health challenge. Um, so I would say for our organization, you know, it's, in, it's incredibly energizing to be part of, of trying to solve this challenge. And, you know, the historical piece of it, you know, we'll look back on years from now, but, you know, in, the, in, in kind of the moment that we're in, I think because it's so intense from, a, you know, a work perspective, it, it is just energizing to know that, that we're part of, of something bigger here and, and we're committed to, to making that difference. That's great. Any, any lessons uh, you, you think that uh, the, the company will learn, you know, going forward? I mean, because it sounds like you're really like stretching your abilities right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things actually, you know, even before the pandemic, we were really focused on becoming a more agile organization and trying to find ways to do that. And I think the pandemic has forced that agility on us, quite frankly, and uh, BD is a 120-year-old company, right? So it, it can be hard to change processes and systems that are in place internally. Um, but you know, through the two large uh, integrations we've done recently with CareFusion and Bard, I think we've brought on some new thinking into the organization. And then, you know, like I said, times like this that are just you know forcing us to be agile, we will learn some lessons. And I know we already have that we're applying to, to our future efforts. That's great. Well, Elizabeth, thanks for uh, joining us on Device Talks Weekly. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. All right, Chris. Well, great job with the conversation with Elizabeth Woody. It sounds like BD is uh, is ready to uh, to produce more. And as you mentioned earlier on, they've got, they've got an order for how many worldwide? More than 1 billion. Well, that, that yeah. leaves us only another six billion to go, and then we'll get everybody in the world. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now you're starting to talk about a lot of syringes. Well, let's get back to the top ten list. What do we have as, at number as six? Carl Chris? Sagan would say billions and billions of syringes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So number six on the list uh, is uh, that you know even here we are in the middle of this pandemic and recession, and uh, you know we're we're still seeing like a lot of uh, medtech IPOs, uh, M and A deals. I mean, stuff is happening. You know, one one story which I got a lot of attention on mass device was uh, butterfly uh, networks uh, plans to you know go pl- public uh, through a you know combination agreement with uh, Longview Acquisition Corp. And they, they've got some pretty cool technology. It's like a transducer that uses semiconductor technology. It can perform a whole body imaging using a single handheld probe. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, some other you know, notable IPOs included Outset Medical. I mean, they've got their all-in-one Tableau hemodialysis system, which... Uh, you know, is uh, especially is is gaining a lot of interest because mm-hmm. uh, you know one of the you know big uh, you know goals under the uh, the Trump administration was to get more you know dialysis moved into the into the home and that you know they they've, so so much of the wheels are rolling. I mean, it seems like something that'll continue into the uh, into the new Biden administration. So uh, so yeah, that that's also a, a popular technology. And then then on the M and A side, I mean, we had you know the uh, you know. Striker, you know, right medical merger, you know, finally closed. Huge. Finally. Yeah, finally. Yeah. yeah. Huge multi billion dollar merger. And another one we're, uh, you know, we're waiting on to, to get complete is, uh, you know, Siemens uh, Health and Ears uh, acquisition of, uh, you know, Varian, uh, you know, medical systems, which, uh, you know, promises to, you know, they're, they're boasting this is going to create the most comprehensive cancer care portfolio in the industry. So here we've just got these giant, we got multi-million dollar IPOs going on. We've got like multi-billion dollar uh, M&A deals uh, closing. So uh, there's a, a, lot, a lot of deals going on and, you know, hopes for the future. That's great. All right. And uh, let's shift into number five. Uh, number five was really just like kind of like the, you know, big shifts and regulatory and, and reimbursement that we, uh, you know, saw, you know, 
during the pandemic, I mean, FDA issuing just so many, uh, you know, emergency use authorizations. I mean, it'll be, um, you know, really interesting to see how, you know, this, you know, whether this easing of regulation, you know, sticks around, you know, as the pandemic, you know, hopefully eases and, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the Biden administration, you know, turns to its own priorities. Um, you know, in Europe, they got kind of a break. They got a delay in, uh, in uh, implementation of the medical device regulation. But, you know, the deadlines are coming up now in 2021. So everybody's trying to get stuff done with that. And, uh, you know, and then on the reimbursement side, we had uh, CMS agreeing to cover breakthrough medical you know, devices. So that was a, uh, you know, good, uh, good news for the device industry on the, on the reimbursement side. And, you know, and, and something I forgot to mention when we were talking about Bayer and Escher back too, is that we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, you know, Bayer isn't the only one. We're seeing tons and tons of legal settlements as well this year, like a lot of bearing of the hatchets. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll just see if this climate, you know, continues on going forward. I guess, Chris, one thing that I thought there is you have like this kind of loosening of HIPAA and it's interesting to see if that will stick. Like if you have have doctors now using platforms like Zoom that don't have kind of like medical grade privacy controls built in, but HIPAA gave a waiver for doctors to use that. So we'll see kind of how things shift, I guess, in the new year. But if some of those restrictions for HIPAA will return or if you'll see this kind of ongoing loosening. Yeah, maybe there'll be uh, some, you know, pressure in, in Congress to, you know, change the law as well, because people, you know, if they're, if they're starting to tighten back up the restrictions after the pandemic, and people are like, wait a second, I like being able to, you know, like, Zoom with my doctor, or, you know, when I had a sore throat or whatever, uh, you, know, you know, maybe we'll, uh, yeah, maybe we'll see like a change in, you know, those, those restrictions as well. That's a really good point. That is a great point. All right. Well, this is a good opportunity to uh, to take a pause from our top 10 list. We'll continue with that and with our own bold predictions for 2021. And now it is time for our second keynote conversation. I had the chance to speak with Claudia Roa. She is the Vice President of Life Science and Healthcare at DHL. Let's hear about DHL's efforts to get the vaccine shipped around the world. Well, Claudia Roa, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. So we don't talk a lot about uh, the role that shippers have in medtech. So this is a, an exciting opportunity for me. We've been talking about the vaccine all week for obvious reasons. But first, let's just sort of step back and, and educate me a bit on how involved is DHL in shipping medtech equipment in working in healthcare and life sciences? We've been involved in the, uh, in the life sciences and healthcare sector for more than 20 years. We've been building a very strong community of uh, of uh, stakeholders within the organization that are specialized in this sector. Uh, we have more than 100 air freight competence centers. We have more than 150 uh, GMP and GDP certified um, uh, warehouses. We operate in more than 220 countries. And um, wow. really the, the sector is focused on developing solutions, end-to-end -end solutions for the for the pharmaceutical and medical devices company. So you talk about the sector, but there's a lot behind the scenes that happens in terms of logistics. Uh, I'm learning that, so this is great. So let's talk a little bit about this week. Uh, what has DHL's role been in the vaccine rollout and what have you been doing to prepare for this much anticipated delivery? We've been preparing for the vaccine distribution for the past six months. I mean, when the pandemic started and, and the companies started developing the vaccine, we realized it's going to be a huge challenge. Why? Because, you know, the volumes are amazing. We have never seen anything like this. The expectation is that there would be more than 10 billion vaccines uh, distributed worldwide to vaccinate at least 70% of the global population. Uh, so since then, you know, we started preparing, talking to manufacturers, talking to governments, talking to NGOs, and uh, we have a task force in place and different work streams, uh, basically working on developing solutions to distribute the vaccines. And these are new solutions really, because mm -hmm. the, the vaccines require, um, there are different types of vaccines and all of these require different uh, um, solutions because of the temperature requirements they have, right? So uh, you will have to, cost, or we will have to customize the uh, solutions based on those requirements and also based on each of the of the countries because each government has a different vaccination plan. Great point. Each country has different infrastructure, so everything everything needs to be considered 
when shipping vaccines into each of the countries in the in the in the world. So I understand you're not shipping within the U.S. You're shipping internationally. How can you? And we, I know you're not going to be able to mention companies that you're working with. But how many different countries are you shipping this vaccine to? Do you know off the top of your head? Oh, we will we will be shipping to every country that we are required mm-hmm. to. Right in the U.S., we're doing the outbound and inbound. Not the domestic distribution because that's you know the government uh, has chosen McKesson to do the distribution and uh, and uh, there's another company that uh, decided to do it directly with uh, some of our competitors and and we don't play a big role in the domestic distribution in the U.S. but we do a lot of international so we're expecting to deliver to every country whatever needed right so we're on conversations with manufacturers and I as I mentioned before with governments and and. Uh, NGOs to support mm-hmm. the vaccine distribution to wherever we need to go. And since we operate in almost every country in the world, we're ready to do it. What preparations have you had to make in terms of we hear about the the, the, the freezers that are required, the ship, the, the temperatures for shipping? How much of an adjustment has that been for, for DHL to prepare for this particular shipment? Yeah, as I, as I was mentioning before, uh, since we're developing these, uh, these archetypes or, or logistics models, Right, we need to uh, identify where do we have gaps in terms of um, lack of infrastructure. Um, where do we need to invest in freezers? Where do we need to invest in in having enough space on our normal cold rooms that are two to eight uh, Celsius, which is the normal temperature where uh, you know we normally store some of the pharmaceutical products and traditional vaccines. But we really need to and have have already done a lot of investments in different countries based on the the different requirements. And how has the uh, has the week gone? And, and well, before you answer that question, has there ever been sort of such a high profile, highly anticipated, large rollout of a shipment of one particular type before? Is this something that you've done before, or is this new territory Never. for you and other companies? Never. Never. This is unprecedented. This is yeah. something new to everybody. I mean, the volumes, as I mentioned, are huge. The coordination before be, between the different stakeholders, it's super important, and that's what we have been learning lately. Uh, this week, of course, is, is a very important week for the world, not only for DHL, but for all of us. You know, we received the news that one of the vaccines has been approved, and probably today we uh, get news about another vaccine being approved, and, and we will expect the same happening uh, next year in Q1 and Q2. So as soon as these vaccines are approved, you can imagine the amount of work behind the scenes that we need to do to get ready, right? We have planes ready. We have our people at origin, destination, working closely with the different uh, public sector um, stakeholders, uh, private sector, NGOs. Everything you know, needs to be coordinated very well. Uh, we cannot afford to lose vaccines. It will happen at some point that you have some vaccines that need to be destroyed because the, effic- the efficacy uh, is not maintained because the temperature has uh, any excursions. But we, we would like to try to avoid that as much as possible and really provide an end-to-end solution that is clean and working like a clock. How has, uh, how has the week gone? The week has been busy, as you can imagine, <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, we don't stop. You know, it's 24 by 7. Everyone in, in, in the different countries working closely uh, with our customers. And also, I don't know if you heard the news, but uh, last week, DHL shipped the first um, shipments uh, shipment of vaccines to Israel. That no. was our first ship. So it was really interesting. So this is this week is busy, but we have been busy in the previous weeks as well, and we expect a very busy year next year. I mean, this is, I would imagine, one of your busiest weeks of the year in any year, to have this layered on top of the week before the holidays or the week during the holidays for some. How has that been, how have you been able to, to manage that? Well, we, we, as I said, we have been planning for this for the past six months. Yeah. So it has not been that difficult, right? Of course, it is It is a, a lot of work. It is, a, you know, we have to be on top of things, making sure that everything is ready. But I would say, you know, we were ready for this. It's, it's not taking us by surprise. And, and we're not shipping this week and next week is not going to be huge volumes, right? Because the huge volumes, we'll see them next year, not, not, not this year. But we're shipping here and there, preparing uh, for some countries would like to receive the vaccine before the end of the year. So that's where we are working on, you know, to make sure that we have everything ready. But again, you know, it's not something that took us by surprise. We were prepared. And how does this feel to you personally uh, to be part of the system that's going to hopefully, for lack of a better word, save the world or at least give a lot of people their their existences back? What does that feel like to you? 
Oh, we're super engaged and passionate. I am very happy, you know, to be to be part of this uh, solution of the crisis, right? Because it will impact everybody. Um, it's not about the business itself. It's about how we as DHL and, and me as a person, of course, are part of this solution. So my team, the whole life sciences and healthcare team globally within DHL are very passionate about it. Our purpose is connecting people, improving lives. And now more than ever, we see that, that purpose in place, right? So we, we need to be there for, for humanity. That's great. And my final question, just looking ahead, it seems as if dealing with COVID has taught everyone something, us in the conference business and the events business, medical device companies. What has DHL learned from not only the pandemic, but maybe the, the rollout and of the vaccine? And how will that change how you work with your med tech and life sciences clients going forward? Lots of different changes. Uh, first of all, the importance of having resilience resilient supply chains, right? You need to be ready. There will be more crisis coming. We need to be prepared. We learned a lot when the pandemic started, when the PPE started shipping and there was a chaos, you know, no freight capacity. Governments had to get engaged and involved in buying uh, the PPE supplies and there was not enough. And, you know, there was a lot of different issues. So we're using those learnings for a future pandemic, the importance again of the collaboration between the public sector authorities, politicians, the private sector, the NGOs, the, all the stakeholders that play an important role in this um, in this sector, right? Um, that coordination is vital for the future. So that's one of the main learnings. Um, we launched a white paper in collaboration with McKenzie back in September, talking about those learnings and also talking about how to prepare um, for the vaccine launch. And we're also learning, uh, you know, new, that, you know, there will be new models, new business models arising from these. Um, let's talk about, you know, direct to patient, for example, it was happening before the pandemic started, but now it is accelerated. Mm -hmm. uh, you will see now you have a lot of patients being treated at home. Uh, you have the um, virtual consultations that means that more patients would expect, you know, their medicines or medical devices to arrive to their homes instead of them going to the doctor and, and, and buying, you know, these, these products in the pharmacy. So that means that we need to, to develop, or we are already doing, you know, developing new solutions to serve these new business models. So lots of things um, are changing and, uh, and I'm glad, right? Because it, it makes us innovate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, DHL is, is a top leader. We, we have three different innovation centers in different uh, parts of the world, one in Chicago, one in Bonn and one in Singapore. And we're, we are always, you know, working on, on finding new solutions, talking to startup companies, academia, what's going on in terms of digitalization, robotics, you know, Let's talk about, you know, more data analytics, artificial intelligence, all these things, even though we have been working on this for many years, this is accelerated right now during the pandemic and, and, and in the future. Well, I'm, I'm grateful to you and DHL for the work you're doing and, and grateful to you specifically for taking some time out of what I'm sure is a really busy week. So thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. All right, it was great to hear from DHL. We haven't really talked much about logistics here on the podcast, so that's, I think, another area of interest we should continue to explore. But now let us resume with the top 10 mass device list, Chris, the top 10 news mark, new markers, newsmakers. Well, number four on the list uh, was, uh, you know, just, you know, unfortunately here in the, in the Twin Cities where I live, uh, we had, uh, you know, like, you know, George Floyd dying under the knee of a police officer, and uh, it's just a uh, just a really really terrible event in our in our community here. And uh, you know, Minneapolis also happens to be a uh, major hub of the medical device industry, so I think it made the industry you know um, you know more more cognizant of, of these you know problems of of racism that we have in this country. Um, you know, so but you know we saw the industry you know trying to do do its part, but I know, I know Tom, you've you've covered that a, a lot of it. Like uh, like, what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it has been interesting to watch, and you're right. A lot of the medtech CEOs and companies really took a strong stand early on. We talked with Kevin Lobo last week on the podcast, and Jeff Martha two weeks before that. In fact, I pulled out his quote that uh, basically that medtech innovation is a, is a people business, and people want to work for companies that stand for something. And he believes that means that Medtronic has to stand for change and diversity and inclusion. And uh, that that single post on LinkedIn just completely resonated with with 
hundreds of people got a lot of likes and comments and uh jeff martha's getting a lot of support for for that stance and he's not alone we don't want to isolate or just suggest it's only striker or medtronic boston scientific of course is, has their own uh, their own program that we covered earlier on closing the gap so uh it's been great to see actually i think the the industry's uh response and we'll continue to track it we'll actually hear from uh one of the founders of medtech color on the podcast uh in early january we'll talk about their views on 2020 what could happen in 2021 and uh, a pitch program that they're actually starting. So uh, that'll be interesting. Yeah, to follow. I mean, it says something that you know the, um, the the majority of top executives in our industry are still are pretty much still white guys. So um, you know, there's there's a lot to do. And uh, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's at least heartening to you know to hear you know the leaders in our in our industry uh, you know actually like you know speaking up and you know and you know about like you know values that we should should have in our country. So I mean, at least there's some hope there. The issue has come through in some of the FDA advisory meetings about the diversity of the clinical trials. And I think both the, the Pfizer-BioNTech and the, the Moderna trials have had to beef up their diversity numbers in their, their phase three trials. And I think they still, they still face questions. Like in the Pfizer meeting last week, people were asking about the kind of dearth of data about Native Americans, for instance. So it's going to be an ongoing kind of, um, I don't know, focus. Yeah. No, that sounds good. Drugs and medical devices shouldn't just be safe for white people. So I think we should. Great point. Yeah, that was uh, something that Closing the Gap was the Boston Scientific Program was working on as well. So great point, Brian. All right, let's uh, move on to number three. All right. So number three was the Johnson Johnson. They finally unveiled their new uh, robot assisted surgery system. This is a, a Tava, you know, which is a kind of Italian word, you know, kind of like higher, you know, higher volume, you know, like, like you know, you're bringing things to a new level. Um, six arms provide more control and flexibility in surgery, uh, but uh, this is their their bid to uh, compete against Intuitive Surgical, which is the dominant player in the space. And you know, meanwhile, uh, you know, Medtronic last year, uh, like uh, they uh, they unveiled their Hugo system. So you know, Da Vinci has Intuitive has a uh, Da Vinci has like the Intuitive has the Da Vinci robot. Medtronic has the Hugo robot. J&J has the Atava robot. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this uh, heating up of competition goes in the robot-assisted surgery space. All right, well, let's, let's carry on the list through number two. We'll, we'll have our final interview. I'm sorry, through number one, we'll have our final interview, and then we'll come back with our uh, predictions for, for 2021. So what's, uh, what's number two, Chris? You know, number two on the list is that, you know, you know Medtronic has embarked on a major uh, reorganization this year. Um, you know, this is going to be. Um, you know, the, there's predicted uh, annual savings of you know around a half a billion dollars uh, by you know 2023. Um, you know, the idea is to really uh, you know cut through the uh, the corporate bureaucracy and uh, you know and separate the company out of 20 like empowered operating uh, units. But I know we. Um, you know, we had uh, you know their new CEO Jeff Martha on uh, just in a in a recent uh, you know podcast. And I remember he, he spoke a lot with you about it. Uh, you know, Tom. I mean, we're, you know, I encourage people to go back and listen to that interview. But we're, I mean, what were some of the big things you heard from Martha? Well, I mean, it's you know, and you and I have talked about it before. Medtronic's desire to be nimble and to move quickly, and they really see splitting the larger company down into twenty smaller operating units is going to allow them to to take the Take, take HQ out of a lot of the decisions and really localize it and give the smaller businesses the focus and the authority to move quickly. And they want to they want to continue to grow. And, and Martha's big on on competition. He wants uh, Medtronic to to take a hold of a market and, and or create a market and hold on to it and not accede it so quickly to uh, to competitors. So. Uh, you know, I, I thought I thought it was cool too. Like Raj Denhoy at Jeffries, like called this like turning the battleship. You know, right? It's the largest medical device company in the world. He wants to kind of like turn this battleship and make the uh, the company more nimble. So yeah, like uh, good good wishes to them. We'll see how see how that goes. Exactly. All right. Now and now let's get to the the number one item, the number one new markers newsmakers of the year. Well, number one, I mean, obvious. I mean, COVID nineteen, and you know, and Met, and you know what what Medtech's been doing to to respond to to COVID nineteen. So many stories. It's been quite a trip going back to the spring. I mean, even looking back at an earlier podcasts where we had MedTech goes to war and we talked to Raj about the impact of, of DPA and whether that was going to be a player. And of course, the push for ventilators and Medtronics making the Puritan plans available. I mean, seems like it was five years ago when this happened. It was yeah. only five months ago. Yeah. It's been a, a long year. Brian, I mean, you you were not with uh, with us at Mass Device and, and the Pharma pages yet, but uh, what's your take from uh, from this year in med tech and COVID-19? I mean, you have this like huge 
push with companies ranging from Pfizer, AstraZeneca, J&J, as Chris mentioned, Gilead, that are all kind of involved in creating therapeutics or vaccines for COVID-19. And I think one thing to watch in 2021 is you have this ongoing kind of focus on drug pricing reform. And it kind of stands to reason that some of these companies are going to use their, their work in, on the pandemic to, to play that card, if you will, to help kind of um, talk to politicians about the kind of angle about they're saving lives, they're, they're helping battle the pandemic. So I think we'll see more of that next year as some of these companies will kind of play up their, their work in developing therapeutics and vaccines to, to use that in their favor to say we're helping save lives and helping to battle the COVID-19 situation. That's a really good point, Brian. I think this, you know, this the pandemic has really improved the the public image of uh, pharma and medical device companies, and that just, you know, that it certainly can't hurt them as you know Congress looks at pricing reform or what regulation or whatnot in coming years. All right, thanks, guys. Now let's start our third keynote conversation. I had the chance to speak with Dr. Eric Eskiaglu. He is the executive vice president and chief medical officer at Novant Health. Novant started vaccinating its nurses and doctors yesterday. Let's listen. Well, Eric Eskiaglu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for having me. We were just talking before I pushed record. Uh, this has been a, a great day at your health system, Novant. Uh, why don't you tell us first just a little bit about the organization you work for so folks know who you are and, and who you're helping? Absolutely. Uh, we are a $6 billion integrated multi-state healthcare system uh, that has 17 hospitals and over 650 care sites. And we uh, take care of about 5 million patients a year. So very large footprint in the Carolinas mainly, but also in Virginia as well, Northern Virginia. And and in a word or two, how would you describe 2020? 2020 is something we all would like to put us behind. Uh, It's been a challenge. Our system has done terrifically well, uh, both taking care of COVID patients, but also at the same time taking care of our patients that have other needs. And we can't forget that. That's about 98% of our patients have other needs And unfortunately, that's been the bigger story is how do we do both at the same time and be effective and not worry about PPEs and not worry about testing. And, uh, you know, we've gone through uh, three uh, surges. Mm -hmm. The first one was in April, May. We shut down all our clinics for about uh, six weeks and we did have high numbers, but we learned a lot from that experience. We learned from the experience of, unfortunately, New York City and other uh, areas that that had the surge first. Then we started being able to take care of the patients at the same time, you know, taking care of COVID patients. Uh, Unfortunately, we hit another peak, what I would say maybe a higher climb uh, back in June and July. And we got through that. And now, to me, it feels like we're scaling the Himalayas, the way the peak has come about. And unfortunately, this time, it's not just pockets in the country, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we're hearing this from, I'm hearing this from all my colleagues around the country, all the other CMOs I talk to, and uh, it's hit us all at the same time. And uh, the vaccine couldn't have come soon enough. I'm really excited. You know, we're in the process of not only scaling the Himalayas to get it to the other side of this peak, and unfortunately, Thanksgiving didn't help us. And we expect the same effect after Christmas when people get together and they want to celebrate. I, I understand. But right now, if we can just hold off for one more time, I think we'll be on the other side. Uh, but we're trying to operationalize uh, as a country and ourselves as a healthcare system. Also, the most complicated vaccine delivery uh, history in the history of mankind. Mm-hmm. And that is a challenge all by itself. I'm proud of the way our pharmacy teams have reacted to this. I'm proud of the way our supply and chain have reacted to this. And you know, we're proud to be able to hopefully inoculate our frontline team members real quickly so we can get to our patients. You know, that's my biggest goal is quickly get to our patients so we can get them inoculated with this vaccine. Well, I know everybody listening to this podcast is grateful for for the efforts of yourself and your colleagues and all healthcare professionals, not only for what you do for COVID, but, you know, med tech folks deal with healthcare folks all the time. It's why we're in it. I think we're all pushing toward the same objective. So 
thank you on behalf of everyone who, who is listening. Uh, you had mentioned it before I pushed record that this is a bit of an emotional day. It's actually the day you've started vaccinating people. Tell us, set the scene for me a little bit. What has the day been like? And what, what is it that you're feeling? What made you feel yeah, emotional? So we started getting, we were tracking our shipments and we started getting our shipments in three of our hospitals today. And I, I still get goosebumps talking about it. And uh, we had identified our two frontline, first two frontline employees. One was an ICU nurse, a phenomenal nurse, Diana, and Dr. Uh, Sam Doherty Hafer, who's our intensivist. And they've been in the trenches for months now with no end and no time off. And they've been just working endlessly and tirelessly. So those are the first two we identified. And when I went there, I thought I was going to keep it composed. When I saw that shot going into Diana's arm and uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Doherty Haper's arm, I really choked up because this is what we've been waiting for. And this is how we're going to hopefully be able to beat this. Now, people are asking me as the chief medical officer, are you getting your shot first? And I'm like, absolutely not. I will wait for my turn. And when my turn comes, I, I will take it. But I want our frontline employees, uh, you know, our clinicians, our nurses who are in the trenches to get it first. But I will tell you one thing. Uh, if you get a shot, take it. And I will. It's a basketball analogy, but I will. When I get a shot, I'm going to take it. My wife is going to take it. Uh, we know this vaccine is about 90 to 95% effective. Uh, which is when you compare it to our flu vaccines, which are only about 40 to 45% effective, tremendous effectiveness. And, uh, and the paper that came out of Germany uh, two days ago also has shown that the Pfizer vaccine, the BioNT vaccine, is also uh, effective against 19 variations of this virus, which is really good news. So even the mutations seem to be not affected by the vaccine. The vaccine can take on the mutations like nothing else. So really excited about this. Your, your CMO, these healthcare professionals, these nurses, these are your frontline troops. These are your people you're responsible for. What has it been like this past year sending them every day uh, into conflict or contact with something that could really harm, harm them or yeah, kill them? It's been, it's been definitely emotional. And, uh, you know, I can't thank him enough, all our frontline nurses and physicians. I actually put myself on the list when the surge comes. And if I need to be there, I can do critical care. So I put myself on the list to be able to help out and do my part if it's needed. And uh, it's, again, uh, you know, every time we felt like we were over a surge, another one came up and this is the third one. And it's almost like, oh no, not again. You know, it's that feeling of defeat and the feeling of how are we going to get over this? But today for the first time, we have a hope, a big hope. And uh, again, I can't stress to you, we have to inoculate every one of our frontline heroes, the nurses, the doctors, the nurse practitioners, the physicians assistants who are in the trenches first to get them safe first. We need to make sure that they're safe. And then moving forward, let's just go out after our most vulnerable patients. You know, I have an 80-year-old mom. She's anxiously awaiting her vaccination. She asked me yesterday, you know, when am I going to get my vaccination? Mom, in due time, just continue your precautions, wearing a mask minimize your interactions with your friends, don't go out. And, uh, but as a country, we're ready. We're ready to move out of this and move on with our lives. And I couldn't be any happier for this vaccine to reach to us. And, you know, we owe a great amount of uh, uh, gratitude to both Pfizer, but also the BioNT uh, company out of Germany for getting us out of this. Just a final question, and I'll let you go. You mentioned Thanksgiving, and we knew if people got together, there'd be a surge. They did, or some did. We've seen the surge. If you want to articulate one more time, uh, any requests to folks who are listening about the holidays? Yeah, I want to articulate to everybody that, please, uh, I'm, I'm really asking you, do not congregate, even with families. It's hard. I know we all miss our loved ones, especially this time of the year is when we get together. But I would still use a lot of caution. If, unless you really have to go, I wouldn't get together with family members, with, except for your nucleus that you're in the house with. Uh, if you have to go out, uh, wear a mask at all times, regardless of even if you're in your family member's house. Uh, keep your distance six feet. And uh, please, please avoid eating uh, with our, your mask, even in restaurants. It's a hard task, I know. But you know, right now is not the time to relax. Uh, I would say uh, the light at the end of the tunnel is here. Just give us a couple more months. And as a nation, we're going to get through this. We're a very strong nation and we're going to get through this. But just 
hang in there. This is a public health emergency. This is not a political statement. Just hang in there for two more months, three more months, and we're going to get out of this as a country. Excellent. Great points, Eric. Well, thank you again for, for everything you've done and to your entire team. And uh, thanks for, for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me from Novantel. Really appreciate it, Tom. Have a great day and be safe. All right, and we're back. We've concluded our uh, interviews. We've uh, covered the top 10 Newmarkers Newsmakers of the Year. Now is the time for our uh, bold predictions for 2021. Brian, you are in the visiting clubhouse, so we'll uh, we'll let you go first. What do you see as being one of the big news items for 2021 in MedTech or Pharma? So in 2021, you'll see significant progress towards building out connected health data infrastructure. So as you know, there's been this prediction for decades that you'll have like this kind of like remote patient um, care model that will take off. And for whatever reason, it's been slower to kind of roll out than a lot of people have anticipated. But with COVID-19, obviously, you have more remote clinical trials. You have more patients that are kind of like in their homes that don't want to venture out to go to the hospital or a doctor. So I think you'll see more nimble data gathering. And um, one thing that I saw just yesterday was there was an EY study saying that 81% of clinical trial professionals were concerned about patient availability. And then you had this like massive amount that they projected of loss from clinical trials that are being delayed or, or what have you. So I, I think you'll see a big push to be able to build out that data infrastructure. Because I think right now, going back to that theme of HIPAA and things like that, they don't have a lot of clinical trial folks don't have like the pipes to be able to get kind of secure data, private, private data from people's homes to um, run clinical trials. So I think you'll see progress there. Uh, COVID's been a big catalyst for a lot of things, so hopefully it'll it'll jumpstart that effort, which has been going on for a while. You're right, Chris Newmarker. What what does uh, 2021 look like to you? You know, what? I think there's going to be another big M and A deal. I think I think that's an easy bet. You know, and the and the good thing is, even if I'm wrong, no one's going to remember. So, but I I think you know I I just think especially after a year like this that. Um, you know, companies are really going to be looking at like, okay, where do we go going forward? And, you know, there's, I mean, just, I mean, the, the consolidation of healthcare is continuing. That's like push for consolidation of the device space. It'll be interesting who, who, who's going to have the big giant multi-billion dollar, you know, merger, you know, next year. We'll, we'll see. But uh, that'd be, that's, that's, that's my rolling of the dice. You son of a gun. That was mine. I was going with, I'm anticipating, no. I, honestly, <laughs> I think there's a lot of private equity money out there that's going to be looking for, for M&A deals. I think there are a lot of companies that have had their budgets realigned by COVID-19, have cut their travel budgets, found new efficient ways to operate. And I think it's just, I just think that's sort of, when you have a lot of, a lot of money. No and, and a lot of companies that are, uh, you know, or maybe a lot of CEOs who are kind of looking to get out of this game. I'm with you 100%, Chris. I think it's going to be a huge M&A year next year. So uh, I wonder what the role this kind of growing antitrust sentiment might have, if any, on the life sciences space. So you have like a lot of pressure in companies like Google and Facebook now that has not really been strong until recently. So that's building. Maybe that will come to other sectors. Who knows? You know, Stryker, to get the right deal, had to spin off stuff to DJO, you know, to, to get it done. So... Yeah, that's a great point. I was actually listening to a podcast this morning, The Daily, the New York Times podcast, and they were talking about the Facebook deal. And it got me thinking, you're right, Brian, like Facebook has this quote unquote monopoly on whatever, on whatever they're able to do. But what do you, what do you say to a company that has the only this kind of implant or that kind of implant? How does this carry over to med tech if there's an increased concern about uh, antitrust? How far can this go? Yeah. So uh, I don't I don't know if it'll have any impact on M&A going forward, but but that's a great point. That's certainly something to watch. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm totally making this up, but, you know, if Medtronic said we're going to buy Stryker, yeah, what, what's the, what are they going to say about that? Like, like, oh, so you want to make everything, you know, I mean, yeah. It's Hold on, I'm tweeting this right now. New marker <laughs> says yeah, <right>. Medtronic. <laughs> Medtronic's going to buy Stryker. No, no, that was just an example. No. <laughs> this is just a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. It's a podcast, right. Hey, I got one more, Tom. All right, since you stole mine, you've, yeah, yeah. You, you, give me give me your your backup because I'm I don't have a backup for myself. Chris. Uh, I'm 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 really interested to see what happens with uh you know renal uh, denervation next year and, uh, and and gosh, Brian, I mean we we covered that together when back in our Cumid days at, at UBM. I mean that was a big huge. It was a failure. I mean, everybody was saying like this was going to be the next big thing. It's going to be so great. We're going to, you know, zap a nerve and, you know, and it'll control blood pressure instead of um, people having to use pharmaceuticals. And uh, years go by and, you know, here we are again. And, you know, Medtronic say, is saying, hey, I think we've, you know, figured out how to clear up 
you know, some of the problems we had in previous studies. And, uh, you know, I, I know uh, Jeff Martha was saying earlier this year, they were, you know, resuming, you know, studies around it. And yeah, I mean, if they've, if they've figured it out, like they say they have, I mean. I remember the, the early data was not as impressive as they had hoped. Well, what's, what's interesting is I was actually sitting, I was at JP Morgan when they had, I was at JP Morgan when first Medtronic announced they'd buy Ardian. So that was back in 2011. And then I was there again when they released the early simplicity data. And I was in the front row of the breakout room uh, across from the, the large ballroom there, his name I can't remember. And I was in the front row behind me, the immediately row behind me were the guys from the foundry who had founded Ardian. And they were they were not happy with the results because they didn't think that the trial was done as well as it might have been. And I think maybe the, the redo bore out their concerns a bit that there actually was more good news. That was evident anyway in 2014. So I, I kind of, like everyone else, said, oh, that's a shame. Uh, you know, and and stop paying attention. Now they they definitely see this as a as a as the next big thing. And going way back to uh, to Ardian, it just I also think this was sort of the last or one of the last examples of the Me Too investing that went in with medtech VCs because at the time everyone have had to have a renal renovation program. All the bigs had one. Covidian had one. And the moment that data came out in 2014, everyone just shut down their startups or their programs and just said, no, we don't need to have that anymore. And you don't really see that as much where everyone seems to have this kind attack or, or that kind of attack. So uh, I think it's, I think already in going back is going to be proven to be one of the more influential, I think, investments and stories in med tech. And I just, I'm, I'm optimistic and very hopeful that it turns out to be a positive story for patients as well. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it will yeah. be. There's been a similar story in the drug space with um, Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, which had kind of like mixed phase three data. And I think there was some sentiment that FDA, like the advisory committee would have a positive kind of review of it earlier um, this year, I think in November. And long story short, they didn't. So it caused the company's um, shares is dead, but there's not been like a new promising Alzheimer's drug in about two decades. So we'll be interesting to watch that space as well. Excellent. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. It's been a great year. Chris, you and I launched this podcast in March. Since then, someone or someone's has pushed the play button 40,000 times. Awesome. So, uh, it's great. It's a great way to, at this time we're all shut in. I'm I'm looking at the cold snow outside at, uh, in Massachusetts. It's kind of a nice, uh, nice symbol of what 2020 has been like, just kind of cold and alone. <laughs> but uh, this podcast has, has really helped us kind of you know, connect, I think, with, with each other, but also uh, more, most importantly with the, the med tech community at large. Um, it's been great to tell these stories. It's been great to, to, to have people hear these stories and, uh, I don't know any any takeaway from your uh, your your podcast time, Chris. Oh, this is I, I just basically this has been uh, you know r- you know really really fun. I get tons of you know great you know feedback uh, you know on, on LinkedIn about what we do and, and in general about what we're we're doing. And this, this is just uh, you know it's uh, it, it's it's good to hang around and chat with you every week, man. This is this is great. I'm looking forward to doing this next year. Absolutely, we'll have uh, we'll have a few few changes. We'll try to continue to make the podcast fresh and fun to listen to. Brian, you've been a, a great addition this episode, and we're we're definitely going to invest the the thirty dollars and get you a, a nice headset so you can sound as crisp and clear as, as Chris do. But we can't wait to have you back. And uh, thanks to everyone who has uh, who has pushed play and everyone who's listened and who's joined us. Yeah. Uh, this has been a, a rough year for, for not just medtech for, for the world, but uh, we're hopeful, as we've talked about today, the vaccine, that things are going are gonna to get better. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll all see each other in October at uh, Device Talks Boston and uh, October 4th and 5th. Device Talks Boston! Woo! <laughs> First rounds on new marker. <laughs> oh wait, man! <laughs> if you're one of the 40,000, just, just, just ask Chris for a drink. He'll take care of you. But, uh, well, that's it. That's a wrap. Uh, Happy holidays to folks who are either enjoying the holidays currently or plan to enjoy the holidays uh, in the coming weeks. And, of course, uh, nothing but peace and joy in 2021. That's all I got. Happy holidays to you and your family and stay safe. 